Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... Uh, Sometimes a student will have taken biology in high school and they will remember critical pieces of it, but they will forget others. That gap, the piece that they forgot, is where we want them to focus. We don't want them to spend all their time reviewing something they already know. They, They need to continue to move forward. That's the essence of that learning process. With adaptive systems, we find the gap and fill it as quickly as possible with that knowledge. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today has a Bachelor of Science in Design from Arizona State University and a Master in Public Policy from Harvard University, a learning path that combined his interests in design, engineering, history and public policy. I reached out to him after Esteban Echeverry, a previous guest on the podcast, recommended that I speak to him about adaptive learning. What is adaptive learning? As my guest likes to say, adaptive learning is about providing the right lesson to the right student at the right time. Consider this interview a masterclass on adaptive learning, as my guest shares his insights, knowledge and experience implementing adaptive courseware in higher education. During our discussion, you will learn what is adapting to the student and how to guide this adaptation by using the framework he developed. We get into the specifics of the role of the faculty and the impact on the student's learning experience. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today my guest, Dale Johnson, who is the Director of Digital Innovation for the University Design Institute at Arizona State University. Prior to this role, Dale served as the Director of Adaptive Learning Initiatives at Arizona State University, where he worked with faculty, staff, and technology partners to develop and implement adaptive courseware to help improve the student success rate. Dale has spoken on adaptive courseware at more than 20 conferences in the US, Mexico, Russia, Brazil, Rwanda and Vietnam and led workshops at numerous universities. He has traveled to more than 40 countries, lived in Barcelona for a year as a Rotary Foundation ambassadorial scholar and built his own solar home in Phoenix, Arizona. If you are an educator, I hope our discussion will intrigue you to consider adaptive courseware in your teaching to enhance your students' learning experience and improve their higher education outcomes. Let's dive right in. Hello, Dale. Welcome to Impact Learning. Hi, Maria. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start with uh, my favorite childhood question. What's a memory you have as a child related to learning something new? 
My first memory of learning was in second grade. I was eight years old, and my teacher asked me to help another student read to him. And he needed work because he wasn't reading at grade level. So I, I remember the effect that had on me uh, being in a position of teacher at just eight years old. And it's interesting when I look back on my life now to think that that memory was so critical to my journey through the uh, professional life and also in terms of my perspective on teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. Did you have the chance to practice that the same later on as a student or was that like one of the ones that happened? So that actually was a confidence boost for me when I think back about my own self-image as a learner. Uh, knowing that someone trusts you to help another person learn gives you a lot of confidence. And as I went through my education, primary and secondary education, I always felt like I had a lot of knowledge to contribute and share with my classmates. So it gave me a lot of confidence. And as, as part of that learning how to learn process, I feel like I got a head start because that second grade teacher trusted me. Uh, it's really been a very crucial moment in my self-image as a learner and my confidence. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. What was the thinking around learning and education in your family as you were growing up? So we were fortunate. My family was very committed to education. We were living in a brand new neighborhood. We were the first family to occupy the house and there was a new school in the neighborhood as well. So everything about my community was focused on learning. All of the children went to the same school. It had a very community-oriented educational approach. And I think that also reinforced my love of learning because when I think back, uh, my, my experience in the first eight years of my education was very stable and very well supported by the community. Uh, and my family, my mother and my father both just graduated from high school, so they never had any higher education. Uh, but they both supported education in all three of the children. My older brother, my younger sister and I went on to get our college degrees. Very nice. What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> that changed every year. <laughs> the first memory I have of that was when they asked us, what we wanted to be in seventh grade, and I wanted to be a forester. Now, I thought it would be fun to be a park ranger out in the woods all the time. Uh, my family had taken vacations to visit national parks in the United States, and I was always inspired by park rangers and the educational programming that they provided. So that eventually evolved into other careers. And uh, by the time I was in high school, we had moved from my childhood home in Delaware to Colorado. In Colorado, I found my, my true love, uh, which was design. And specifically, my father bought an old school building when I was in 11th grade, and we remodeled that, turned it into a home. So I started designing 
that as part of that family experience. And then I worked every night and every weekend for a year with my dad and my older brother to build that family home. We moved in when I was a senior in high school. So I had a chance to live there before I went off to college. And I think that was the turning point for me to focus on design because from that moment on, I knew that I loved to solve problems and work with the uh, challenges, real world problems of building things. Mm -hmm. And what did you decide to study in college? So my first degree was in solar engineering. I wanted to be part of the environmental revolution. When I was building my dad's home, I started studying uh, solar energy as part of this design process. And I, I decided that I could make a contribution to the world by focusing on the development of solar energy as a clean and sustainable alternative to fossil fuels. So I got that degree. And as part of that, I realized that just focusing on solar energy was quite limiting. So as, as I went to work and worked for a couple of years in that field, I started thinking about what else I might want to do. And I transitioned over to architecture. I went to Arizona State University and got my undergraduate degree in design with a focus on architectural studies. And that was where I was combining the work that I do with my dad and my brother, along with my love of, of energy and environmental design. And that's, that's that first path that I started on as part of my college education. Mm -hmm. And after you graduated, uh, what job did you, did you get? I got lucky. I was working as a graduate student at Arizona State when one of my mentors approached me. He was the associate dean of the College of Architecture and Environmental Design. And he asked me to participate in a study that the new university president was doing on how to organize a multi-campus university. Arizona State was growing very rapidly in the 1980s, and it was growing so fast that it was overwhelming the management team. So I spent a year working with him and the president of the university at the time, doing that analysis and helping him figure out ways to reorganize the university structure. So that was a, a very critical opportunity, I think, in terms of career, because rather than going into architecture, I went into organizational design and institutional design. So that set another uh, path for me that I was interested in pursuing, which is bigger problems, bigger challenges, more complexity. Uh, my, my takeaway from that was that you can use design skills anywhere. So I always look back very fondly on my architectural education because it, it set a series of principles in my head about discovering information, uh, focusing on client needs, uh, providing solutions to complex problems that have served me well in all of the different jobs that I've done since then. Mm -hmm. And what was the most challenging aspect of, uh, of this work? 
with the university president. It was organizing the information collection and analysis. I remember sitting together with another classmate who was also on this project and, and the associate dean and brainstorming and just thinking about what are the issues that we need to analyze. And we built over the course of a couple of hours, we built this information framework that guided us for the next nine months as we collected information, analyzed it. And even to this day, I think back on that meeting as a moment when I got a chance to really practice the art of solving problems and think about how do you organize information in a way that makes it understandable to others. That was a, a fun project. We had a great result and we got good feedback from the president of the university. Mm -hmm. Are there any like guiding principles that you use to organize information to share with others so they can make a decision? The most recent version of this is design thinking. And I, I found it fascinating because design thinking emerged in the last five years as a, a, a social movement to organize information, thinking about empathy with your client and then working through the different options to develop alternatives. And as I think back on what we learned in architecture school, those were the operating principles mm -hmm. that we were building on. One of the terms that architects use when they're thinking about organizing a a project is called the program. And the program, this was long before computer programs and other uh, uses of this term were more common. The program is the outline of all of the issues and options that are available to the client. So as you're thinking about the empathy factor, how do you build an understanding of what the client needs? You work closely with all of these variables, the the location of the building, the needs of the client, the requirements of the local government, uh, the safety, the health, all of these factors are critical. So as I think about organizing information, I always think about those kinds of frameworks. And one of the skills that I feel uh, has served me well is the ability to identify structures in information and create a, a way to communicate that clearly to other people. So when I'm dealing with complex problems in instructional design, I feel like I have a, the ability to communicate clearly what are the issues and options available to the faculty member or to the students or to my colleagues. Mm -hmm. And also like the overall system change that we can talk a little bit later. Yeah, that's another term that I really like, systems thinking. Yeah. When, you know, when you start off in architecture, they give you very constrained problems. You're, you're dealing with a very specific challenge and they want you to focus. But as you get more and more experience, th this becomes a systems challenge. If you change one part of the building, like the structure, it's going to affect every other part of the building. So as you think about every problem that we deal with and every solution that we develop is really a systems solution. So that's another area that I really appreciate uh, greatly is systems thinking 
and trying to keep that balance in mind and not just becoming too focused on one aspect because every decision that we make has implications for other areas of what we're doing. Dale, you are an expert in adaptive learning, and I know just a little bit to ask you questions, but there are many who are not familiar with adaptive learning. So how would you describe adaptive learning to someone who hears about it for the first time? I start with the objective. The objective is to deliver the right lesson to the right student at the right time. Now, that's very easy to say and very hard to do. Uh, that's in contrast with our historical model, which was delivering the same lesson to all students at the same time. Let me give you an example. In college algebra, we used to have lectures with 100 students sitting in a room. This is a common technique that's been used for hundreds of years. All of the students are receiving the same lecture on the same day. Within that group of 100, however, there is a full spectrum of understanding. Some people already know the lesson and some people have no idea what the instructor is talking about. We never had a, a, a mechanism or a means to address the learner diversity in the past. When the adaptive systems started to develop, they offered a new tool to change our pedagogical approach. So what I describe as a marriage between new technology and old pedagogy. Now, the new technology is the adaptive instructional system. The old pedagogy is actually the model that is referred to typically as the Oxbridge model. It's a tutoring model where you have one student and one tutor who are focused on uh, helping that student learn as effectively and efficiently as possible. If we had all the money in the world and all the time in the world, we would hire tutors for every student, but we obviously can't do that. So this technology is an alternative to that historical pedagogy. Uh, what we've seen at Arizona State is that using this personalization strategy, the ability to deliver the right lesson to the right student at the right time, is much more productive for the students than the old mass production strategy. Uh, we've seen it in college algebra, we've seen it in college math, in introduction to biology, in microeconomics and macroeconomics, in every course that we've rolled out this model, the students have done better. And that's really why we've, we've gotten excited about it as a, an approach to education. Mm -hmm. When you say the students get better, how do you measure uh, that they are making better progress? How do you measure this better? We measure two components. One is progress and the other is performance. What we can do now is we can do an initial assessment of where they start. Now, this is part of a, a model, an adaptive model. It has three components, initial assessment, personalized instruction, 
and final assessment. If you can visualize these three phases, then you can do this for any subject. The initial assessment with the college algebra class showed us that there were some students who were at zero knowledge in algebra and other students that had 50% of the curriculum already mastered. We, we've done this now for 30,000 students over the last four years. So we have a really good database of the variety of places that students start. So if, if for example, you're a student that is done with 50% of the class on the first day, then the expectation is you will finish the class early, that your personalized learning path will get you to the final exam faster than someone who has 0% of the class finished. So that's progress. We also find out, and sometimes tragically, that students are less than zero in their knowledge. What do I mean by that? I mean that they actually have a deficit in their math skills that they have to overcome. Uh, one of the techniques we tried before we went to a fully adaptive instructional system was developmental math. We created a class and we put students in that class if they could not score high enough on the initial assessment in order to get into college algebra. So that process of putting a student in a developmental course has been used for a long time. Uh, what we found was it wasn't actually helping the students get into college algebra and eventually succeed there. So we, we found that if we take that same student, we eliminate developmental math, and we put them in a, an, an adaptive system, the system will help them catch up and will help them accelerate the progress of their learning. Now, the second component of our measurement is performance. So we want all students to achieve mastery of all lessons. That's a different standard than all students getting a grade of 70 or above in the class. And let me give you an example of this. If you have a student who scores a 70 in the class, they get a C. So that indicates that they passed the class and they've been successful. However, the 30% of the curriculum that they did not understand is going to leave gaps in their knowledge. And it's a, a Swiss cheese metaphor. There are holes in their learning map and they don't have the skills that they'll need for the next course. There could be a very significant knowledge gap that impedes their learning in the next level. We found this to be true repeatedly for students who come into algebra where they may have forgotten how to multiply fractions or how to add fractions. And those techniques, those skills that are so important to manipulating algebraic functions and solving problems are fundamental. So if a student has forgotten how to multiply fractions and you're asking them to solve an algebraic equation that requires that skill, 
they're going to fail, not because they don't understand the algebra, but because they don't understand the basic math. Adaptive systems are able to go back, find those gaps, those holes in the Swiss cheese, and fill them and provide remediation. I call it rapid remediation. So we are looking at how a student progresses and, and what rate, and then how do they perform on each of those lessons. And how frequently do you do this kind of assessment so you can, ident you can identify the, the holes in their learning map? It's a constant assessment model. Every time they interact with the adaptive system, they are being assessed. It comes in the form of either questions that they're answering specifically. If, for example, you were enrolled in college algebra, you're going to be solving algebraic problems constantly. So every time you get one right, the system is making a note of that. Every time you get it wrong, it's making a note of that. And it's tracking your skills and it's searching for gaps in your skills. The systems require huge amounts of data to arrive at that type of analytical output. Um, the, in the case of the system that we're using in college algebra, it was developed at the University of California, Irvine in the 1990s, and it's had 20 years to acquire and analyze data on student behavior and student learning. So developing the capability to analyze a student's performance and to use that assessment data is a long-term project. Uh, what we're trying to figure out at Arizona State now is how do we accelerate that process? We don't have 20 years to wait for the next system to develop. So how do we shorten the life cycle of development on these adaptive systems in order to get more capabilities built and more students benefiting from them? Mm -hmm. So you talked about the analytics, the like the assessment and the, the data analysis. And uh, I know that you have like the framework that has the algorithm, the assessment, the association, and the agency. Can you talk to us about these four components? Yes, the 4A framework I developed. Having worked with dozens of these systems, I was trying to dis determine what they were doing to get to a recommendation for the right student, the right lesson to the right student at the right time. And those four techniques were the most common. So everyone is searching for the algorithm. That is the ultimate destination. That requires terabytes of data and very sophisticated analysis. And as I was describing in math, 20 years of hard work. So I don't think that the algorithm is actually the most beneficial of the, uh, of the four A's. The other three, association, uh, assessment, and agency are much more useful. So let's start with association. What we're talking about there is a three-dimensional syllabus. For a, a professor to teach a class, they start with an idea of how to organize the knowledge and they put that in their syllabus. That syllabus is a two-dimensional guide for a student to learn. And we've all 
done this in our classes. We look through the syllabus, get a sense of the roadmap that the professor wants us to travel to get to the destination, which is success in the class. Now, when we do this with not just one syllabus, but maybe thousands or even tens of thousands of syllabi, we develop a three-dimensional model of different paths through the learning process. That's what these systems do. They develop not just that course, but also what about prior courses? What was the student supposed to learn the year before? And what do we expect them to learn the year after? So three-dimensional association network that's often called a knowledge map or a lesson plan, uh, concept chart. There's lots of terminology there. The assessment technique is a very uh, tactical solution. That's where after every lesson, we're asking you questions or having you engage in problem solving exercises that will determine whether you understood the lesson. That process is much more directly beneficial to the students because having that immediate feedback and rapid remediation is a huge benefit. If I go back to the old one-on-one -on -one tutoring model, if I have a tutor assisting me and I get something wrong, they can immediately correct what I did wrong and they can challenge me to do it right. If I'm in a class and I'm working on a Thursday night and I, I get something wrong, I won't even know I got it wrong perhaps until the following Monday when we meet for class. Mm -hmm. In that case, I've lost all of the value of that lesson for getting it wrong. The systems are there in an immediate and direct way. So you get something wrong, they provide you with additional instructional resources to help you get it right. So rapid remediation comes directly from assessment technique. And the last one, agency, is the one I like the most because if I go all the way back to my original comments about paying attention to the client and focusing on empathy as a first step in the design process, what agency does is it empowers the students to provide feedback on their learning. We first saw this about four years ago in a product. At the bottom of every lesson, they put a, uh, a question that the students could respond to and they asked, how well did you understand this lesson? So the students are responding to that and they're able to provide that feedback directly to the system. Uh, then we started seeing it in other systems and it struck me that agency is what we've been missing. Our old model required a student to raise their hand in class or perhaps send an email to the instructor or go to the office hours to talk with the instructor if they had a question or they didn't understand something. Each of those techniques is useful but not sufficient to provide the kind of feedback we need. So when you start asking a student at the bottom of every lesson, how well did you understand this, you gain a lot of insight into their learning process. So the combination of agency, assessment, and association eventually generates sufficient data to get to an algorithm. And 
as I mentioned earlier, if we can accelerate that process by collecting more data and, de and deriving more insights into the learning process, then that's what we want to do. So you work with the professor, the faculty, who was teaching the course before it became an adaptive course. And also you have a partner like the, the technology or the software. Yes. Which, which part did they contribute to build ultimately the adaptive course? Let's take algebra as an example. The technology depends on the teacher. That's one of my rules of thumb. If you have a good technology and a bad teacher, it will not be successful. And if you have a bad technology and a good teacher, it may be successful. So when you ask about the role of the professor, I think that it is the central role in this entire process. Our professors have designed, developed, and implemented these systems. They come in two formats. One I call configure, and the other construct. The configuration process starts with a product like the College Algebra product that's already mature. And the faculty members are making decisions to configure that software to meet their needs and the needs of their students. That process can take anywhere from one to six months. So as you, as you think about how do we analyze what lessons go into a class, how do we turn a two-dimensional syllabus into a three-dimensional association matrix? Those are all critical components. At Arizona State, we had six professors working on the configuration of college algebra, and they spent six months working on that to get the course design right. The other one is construction. That takes significantly longer because you don't start with an association matrix. You start with a blank sheet of paper or you start with your existing syllabus. And then you have to design the componentry around that. That can take anywhere from one to three years. And when you think about the investment in time and money, it's a critical moment in the conversation when, when I'm working with a professor and we're talking about what are the technology options if we have the money and the time, we can construct a custom solution. We've done that for biology. We've done that for economics. We've done that for history classes, for psychology. If we don't have as much time, as much money, we may have to configure something that already exists. We've done that for college math, for college algebra. Uh, and, th and these are alternatives that end up at the same place, but take longer depending on which one you choose. Mm -hmm. And when you built it, let's say you run it, you have to run it through the whole semester or a couple of times before you look at it and, and uh, see if you need to iterate it? My rule of thumb is you need three times through a course in order to become an expert in that new model. So you start out with the initial development. Let's say you're configuring the course. So you configure the technology, you do one semester, and then you evaluate and you adjust and you adapt 
your pedagogy and your teaching to the results. You run it again for another semester. You adapt again. By the third semester, the professors are very, very skilled and have a high degree of expertise in both the technology and the pedagogy so that they have confidence by the second year, the start of the second year, they feel like they are in control of this new model. That's really important because if you're evaluating the first semester and the results are not good, you might abandon the project, but you have to allow for the human element. You have to allow for us to learn how to do this better. I always ask the professors to bring their research brain to the teaching endeavor that we are involved in. By that, I mean they need to think about this kind of work just like they think about their research, that they're going to do multiple experiments. They're going to learn from each experiment and they're going to adjust as they go. We don't want them abandoning the process too early. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how uh, critical is the, the role of the professor uh, as they build it. What is the role like during the semester after you implemented it and basically the students go through the adaptive courseware? What is the role of the professor during this stage? The first thing and most important thing is that they have to change their role from lecturer to leader. And by that, I mean, we have digitized all of the lecture material and all of the instructional resources and placed them online. The students are responsible for doing all of that work in advance of the class meeting. In the class meeting, the professor is leading the students through problem-solving exercises. Let me give you an example. In biology, intro biology, we have 450 students in that class every fall. And traditionally, we would have two large lecture halls with 225 students each going for three lectures a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When we redesigned that class to be an adaptive class, what we said was, you're not going to need to meet three times a week anymore. We just want you to come once a week for an interactive exercise with a smaller group of your classmates. So instead of 225, we have 75 in a room and we break those groups down into groups of six tables, round tables with groups of six students so they can work with each other in small teams. That pedagogical change is critical to the success of this overall transformation of introducing adaptive systems. This is where, when I talk about a balance between technology and pedagogy, I'm talking about this reliance on the technology to do the basic instruction and focusing the professor's time and the student's time on higher order thinking. If you're familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, Mm -hmm. what I describe as the proper tool for the proper job, 
The bottom of blooms, remember and understand, we deliver through the adaptive system. Higher order blooms, analyze, evaluate, etc. We do active learning in class. And that's been the transformation. That is the key design element in this model that makes it much more valuable for the student learning. We never had time to do higher order blooms work in class before because we were always busy lecturing. And when faculty members stopped lecturing, it freed up all of this time. So now what we do is we realign the learning activity to the time available. And for us, the active learning has been a real huge benefit. I'll give you uh, two data points here to, to cement this uh, idea of changing the pedagogy to map to this technology. When we started measuring, uh, I, I described two ways to evaluate progress and performance. That translates into two numbers that we've collected for 100 years. The progress is the withdrawal rate. We, and often in, in the introductory classes, would see between 10 and 40% withdrawal. Those are students who made a decision that they could not keep up with the class or could not make sufficient progress. So rather than fail, they would get a W. So our goal from the outset was to reduce the withdrawal rate to less than 5% in all of these first year general education classes. That's a really difficult thing to do when you start to try because if you try to do that in the old lecture model, you're still using the old approach of mass production. Students are still gonna get lost and gonna withdraw. With this new mass personalization model, we were able to reduce the withdrawal rate to under 5% consistently in all of these general education courses. The reason why we think that's true is because the active learning is much more attractive to the students. When they're grouped in their team, they immediately have five classmates that they can confide in. If they're struggling, they'll ask a classmate before they'll ask a professor because the professor is intimidating and potentially controls their grade. So they, they are always cautious about admitting their ignorance to a professor. But they might say to their classmate, I need help. So we create this social network for them on the first day of class because they sit down at a table. They immediately have five classmates that they know. We do introductory exercises. Eight weeks into the semester, we mix them up. So they meet five more classmates. So now they have a social network which is much stronger than the old mass production model where they were all alone in a large lecture hall with no connection to their classmates. So that social network we think helps reduce the withdrawal rate. Then on the other side of the equation, on the performance side, we're looking at the grades of C or better. So that's the success rate. If a student gets a C 
in one of these classes, then they can continue on in their education. If they get a D or an E, they might have to drop out or change their major. So we, we really strive for a grade of C or better. We call that the success rate. And our goal is to get 90% success rate. When we started this with college algebra, we were averaging 57% success rate. That means that more than four in 10 students were failing that class. That is a disastrous result for a first year student. So if four out of every cell phones that came out of the factory did not work, Apple would be out of business and Samsung would be out of business. But we, for decades and decades, routinely failed four out of 10 students in this introductory math class. Now we're up to 84% success rate. So we've gone from 57 to 84 using this new approach. We are very close to our 90% success rate. Each percentage point gets harder to attain because you're reaching deeper and deeper into the body of students that are underprepared for college algebra. But what our experience shows is that when you personalize the learning process and you engage the students in these problem-solving networks, the social networks in class, that they have much higher resilience, they don't withdraw, and they have much higher success. They get better grades. And how do students describe their experience during the adaptive course and this active learning that is happening? The most accurate description I've seen, or appropriate description perhaps, is that this is what they expected from college. They, they actually bring an idea of education to college with them, and they, they come looking for a challenge, looking for a learning experience that's more than a large lecture hall full of strangers. And unfortunately, we have been disappointing them for decades. And what we've done now is we've gotten closer to the needs of our clients. When I go back to design thinking again, and I think of empathy, if I'm a first year student and I come to a large university like Arizona State, and I'm placed in a room with 300 strangers, after I just came from a high school where I had 30 students in my class and I knew everyone and the teacher knew me personally, I'm going to feel lost at the university. And that's what was happening. Students were losing their identity. They were losing their way. They were losing their love of learning because we were failing the empathy test. We weren't recognizing what they were looking for. This model of engaging them in small group problem solving is much more exciting and much more interesting, much more engaging. And they are showing us that by staying in class and not withdrawing. So as a proxy for satisfaction, we look at the withdrawal rate and we, we work really hard to make sure that that stays 
at less than 5%. Very good. You talked about the introductory biology and the algebra. Uh, are the the learnings and the good practices that you developed after you implemented and ran these courses transferable to other courses, or do we have to build like a new course from scratch? The model is the same. So when you're thinking about other courses we've done, and we've done over 20 of them now, whether you're talking about economics, psychology, history, even philosophy. We, we had one philosophy professor who wanted to try this model. It works. Then we've also done first year, second year, third year, and fourth year classes the same way. This is a flipped class model if you're familiar with the terminology. Some people refer to it as a hybrid model. It's really nothing new to educators who've been focused on improving student outcomes for the last 25 years. We've seen it in K-12 for a long time. What, what's a little bit different is the addition of the adaptive instructional system. By personalizing the instruction, we are adding rocket fuel to the flipped class model. We are accelerating the student learning. And that's something that is very beneficial. Uh, sometimes a student will have taken biology in high school and they will remember critical pieces of it, but they will forget others. That gap, the piece that they forgot, is where we want them to focus. We don't want them to spend all their time reviewing something they already know. They, they need to continue to move forward. That's the essence of that learning process. With adaptive systems, we find the gap and fill it as quickly as possible with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. I love that you talked about the students like sitting around the table in small groups and building the, the relationships you know, with other students that they can ask questions and help each other. What happened when you had uh, to move things online? Uh, you know, during the pandemic and everything became online. So now they cannot sit around the same table. What changes did you see? It is more challenging online, but we found that Zoom has breakout rooms. And I just did a workshop for 220 Brazilian professors. It was an all day workshop. And I had them break out into groups of six, just like our students. So I give them 10 minutes of instruction and then they would go away for 20 minutes in their breakout room and then they would come back together and we would debrief and then they would go away again in their breakout room. So the pedagogy can be digitally delivered. That's the most important lesson. Uh, but there's still many, many shortcomings in the tools. So what we have to do is we have to layer additional tools on top of these these communication systems like Zoom. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, what we have is we have an adaptive instructional system to deliver all of the instruction. Then we'd have a Zoom class meeting where we do breakout rooms. And then on top of that, we use an online polling software that would allow the professor to gather feedback. And, and I did this with the Brazilian professors. We had repeated polls built in to the course experience. So they were providing me with feedback throughout the process. 
that's the piece that's hard to to recreate online. And for anyone who's taught in a classroom, you know the ability to read the room, to get a feel for the energy in the room, to understand when students are bored or when they're excited. Those are things that we develop over years of our life experience. When you try to do that online, you need really good tools and you need to be very confident and comfortable with those tools. So as I transition my teaching into the digital world, I'm still doing problem solving and active learning, but I'm layering all of these new tools onto that process. Mm -hmm. uh, you've talked uh, about adaptive learning in multiple countries, and you just shared the example with uh, Brazil. What is your experience uh, with respect to implementing adaptive courses like in different regions, in different countries? Are there some that they are better than others? I've talked about this recently as a global academic culture. It's not a Latin American culture or a North American culture or an Asian culture. It's an academic culture that we're trying to change. And that's a global culture. For example, when I do a workshop in Brazil uh, and I ask the professors if they have ever done any active learning exercises in their class, it's very rare because they're very much based on the lecture model. This is true in America too, where the majority of professors are still giving lectures because they've never had any support or technology to make the transition to this new model. The challenges in Brazil or America or France or uh, let's say uh, Vietnam, I did a project in Vietnam last year. It's really about getting the professors to change what they do. That's the hard work. The technology enables a change, but it does not guarantee that will be successful. To go back to my original comment, the technology depends on the teacher. If, for example, the professor tells the students, I've posted all of my lectures online, but then continues to lecture in class, the students will stop looking at the online lectures. I guarantee it because they know it's a waste of their time. They're going to get the same lecture again in class. But if the professor puts all the lectures online and then never lectures again in class, that's going to change the culture of that class. That's a process that takes time also. We work very hard to identify two transformations. One is to the teacher and the other is to the student. The transformation to the teacher, as I described, can take a long time. You may be working with a professor for years to get them comfortable with this new model. With the students, you have to help them make that transition much faster. You start out week one and they're going to be very confused because they think you're going to lecture to them. And when you don't lecture, they feel like you are doing something wrong as a professor. So you have to retrain your students to, to work in teams and to do the problem solving. And that takes time. 
One of the things that I really appreciated about my education in architecture was that we were doing problem solving all the time. That is the essence of architectural education. You're put in a problem from day one and you're given the responsibility to solve that problem. Then you work with your classmates to identify the various components and various options and you solve it. That prepared me for this time in history where we can now combine technology and that active learning pedagogy to offer similar opportunities to learn to other students. So I'm really harvesting my education from 40 years ago to help students in the future. And that's something that has been very powerful across every discipline at Arizona State where we've done it. You talked quite a bit, Dale, about your relationship uh, and journey together with a professor. How do you reach out to them, like to convince them? How does how do you start engaging with them, especially with someone who has not uh, used adaptive courseware? How do you reach out to them and start building this relationship? This process takes four levels of leadership to succeed. And within Arizona State University, it requires professors who are willing to lead the redesign process. The department chair has to support and lead the transformation. Then the dean of the college has to support the department chair and the professor and lead the transformation. And finally, the provost has to support and lead the transformation. So when we start this conversation, it's a meeting of all of those leaders, the representative from the provost's office. We have a vice provost for student success. He's been responsible for engaging the faculty in this conversation. And he brings in the dean, he brings in the department chair, he brings in faculty leaders, and we have this conversation. We talk about what does the pedagogy look like? What does the technology look like? What is the work required? What is the timeline? What are the expectations for results? What are the needs of the students? All of the conversations that we've just had today are really the, the same kinds of conversations that we have with our, with our faculty and all of the other leaders. So for anyone else considering this journey, I encourage you to convene those kinds of leadership conversations early, right away, if you can, uh, to ensure that there's not a weak link in that chain. If, for example, a department chair does not support the transformation of a course, then eventually the faculty will realize that they're not getting any help and they'll stop, they'll give up. So we have to get the department chair to commit to two years of work and helping those faculty members stay committed and stay motivated over time. Those are the kinds of things that I focused on when I was a director. And that's the kind of day-to-day -day conversation that we would have. Where are we in this process? How are we doing compared to our expectations? 
what are the opportunities that we may need to take advantage of to be successful? Those are the kinds of things that uh, only leaders in the organizations can, can really engage around. Uh, eventually, then other faculty members will come around and start asking questions and wonder what types of things you're working on. And then other department chairs and other deans will show interest. But it really starts with that conversation to make sure that all of the leaders are aligned. If I'm an educator, a faculty, in a university outside of Arizona State, and uh, we don't have your role, like, you know, we don't have a person like you, Dale, who does what you do, but I'm interested in adaptive learning because I can hear from you all the benefits for the students and the active learning. Where do I start? Like, what's the first step I can take if there is no Dale to go to to start the discussion? A prototype is worth a thousand meetings. So I always encourage my colleagues at Arizona State and elsewhere to start by building a prototype of the course that you want. For example, if you do not have adaptive technology and you do not have instructional design support and you do not have leadership support, you can still build a flipped class in your LMS, in Blackboard, in Canvas, in Moodle, or in Google Classroom. You can now, because of the COVID-19 crisis, record your lectures. You've already been doing it in order to continue your class. So record those lectures, place them into your LMS, and begin prototyping the flipped class. Now this would have to be a labor of love because it takes a lot of work. And one of the lessons we've learned is that course redesign is a team sport. Unlike many, many, many faculty members who've had to teach themselves technology and had to do all of their own development work in order to, to teach their courses, this kind of transformation really requires a team. If you have instructional designers and you have video technologists and you have other uh, people who can help out, that's wonderful. If you don't, then start small, prototype your course, learn from that and continue to improve because you will become the leader that others will look to when they start this journey. And that's the transition. I mentioned it in the classroom from lecturer to leader, but it's also among the faculty members in an academic discipline. We need more leaders who are demonstrating this kind of willingness to change what they've done, to abandon the live lecture, and engage their students in problem solving, in teamwork, in collaboration. Uh, there's a term for this, uh, and I've heard it referred to in a couple different ways. Some people refer to these as 21st century skills. I like to use the term professional skills. Communication, mm -hmm. collaboration, quantitative reasoning, creativity. These are skills that serve a student for their entire career. I have been, as I, as I was describing to you my educational journey, I've been an engineer in solar energy. I've been in architecture and design. I've been in public policy and administration. 
In every case, those skills, those professional skills have served me well. And I use those skills regardless of what discipline I'm involved in or what problem I'm solving. Those are the kinds of things that add value. And that's where we're giving students the opportunity to practice in class, in, an, in a safe environment, so that when they become a biologist and their company that they work for is looking for leaders who are willing to innovate, they will be the ones to step up and say, I'm comfortable leading a team of five colleagues because I've been doing it for four years at Arizona State. I've been practicing for this moment. We think that is a differentiator. When our graduates finish, we want them to have practiced this kind of group problem solving hundreds of times. That will give them an edge when their peers in an organization don't have any experience doing problem solving at this scale. And they do. Mm -hmm. So it basically brings the exper experiential learning aspect. Yes. Uh, I, I, I describe it this way. When I was in school in the 1980s, if I wanted to get leadership training, I had to be involved in an extracurricular activity. I was involved in student government, so I learned how to communicate. I learned how to collaborate. I learned how to be creative because I was doing group community work. Uh, some people join fraternities, some people do sports, some people join clubs. All of those things were training for this experience, this life that we live. But they all happened outside of the class. Today, we are including them in the classroom experience. You know, the, the idea of extracurricular activities, we are now including them in the class so that they don't necessarily need to go outside to develop those skills. And for all the students who never joined student government or never joined a fraternity or didn't get involved with the club, this is a much better solution for them because they are going to, to learn by doing in the classroom. Experiential learning of solving problems and working in teams is going to be a differentiator. Mm-hmm. You talked about the global academic uh, community. Do you share the good practices and the lessons you learn uh, through the different adaptive courses, like with others in different departments or universities in the States or globally? Yes, I do so through this type of podcast and also through conference presentations. And more recently, we've been getting a request from other countries to work on this kind of transformation. I spent last, a lot of time last year in Vietnam introducing this model to their seventh grade math class in a prototype that we did with them to show that you could take this flipped class model and introducing adaptive technology in a different country with a different educational culture and be successful. So that's what we discovered is that this works in Vietnam, it works in Brazil, it works in Mexico, it works in the United States, it, it works in Russia. You know, we're finding that every time we go into that global academic culture 
and we have this conversation, the faculty members understand the value. They, they realize that this is a unique opportunity just in the last five years that we've really had the technology to make this possible. And many people have been dreaming about this for a long time. I'd say 75 years. And some people would argue for 100 years, going back to the, the early learning scientists. They were all talking about this kind of revolution. You know, Dewey, Piaget, these were folks who were really dreaming about this opportunity. And it's only been technologically possible in the last five years. Mm-hmm. So now it's 2020. What do you see as the, the main challenges that still need to be improved to continue to implement adaptive learning courses? Scale and sustainability. One of the things that we've learned is it takes a lot of time and money to build a custom adaptive course. And most organizations do not have time nor money. So they're stuck. And it's hard to scale when you're building one course here and one course there. Fortunately, we had an, a university commitment hiring me and my colleagues to focus on this. Many organizations do not have that kind of commitment and they don't have the people or the funding. So what we're trying to do now is figure out a way to scale adaptive systems more rapidly and to sustain that effort in a, financially so that the professors who are involved in this innovation will be able to adopt the new model without spending years and years and years doing it or uh, in, in a sense committing their whole life to this endeavor for a period of time. That's the idea. If we can get to scale and sustainability, then faculty members in universities or community colleges who don't have a lot of resources should be able to adopt this model at very low cost of time and money. Mm -hmm. And where does most of the cost come from? Is it the technology? It's actually the time that the faculty members spend. Um, most of the funding that we have invested has gone into professors who are either getting a course buyout, which is freeing them up from their teaching obligations or their research obligations to work on this project, or we're providing a summer stipend for additional work during the summer months. And those have been the biggest investments that we've made. It's been about people. Mm -hmm. It's been about changing the culture of the teaching profession. And it turns out that the technology now is, is more available and we are able to utilize the technology at a much lower cost than, let's say, 15 years ago. Um, what, what really takes time and money is the effort of the faculty members to either configure or construct the new systems. Very good. You recently changed your role. You are still uh, at Arizona State University, but now you focus more on digital innovation. Does this include more things beyond adaptive learning? Yes. This is a broader portfolio. It includes administrative innovations as well as academic. 
the adaptive instruction has all been academic. What we've looked at over time is the transformation of the student success rate requires a holistic approach. It requires administrative innovation and academic innovation. Over time, Arizona State has built out many, many tools to support the faculty members and staff members and students in that increase in success rate. I mentioned earlier how we have a course success rate of 90% as our goal. We also have a first year retention success rate of 90% as our goal. When the university started this journey 20 years ago, that's, that retention rate was in the 60% range. Today, it's at 86. So moving that first year retention rate up 26 percentage points required a lot of innovation across a lot of different areas of the university. And my new portfolio includes helping our university improve in administrative and academic areas, as well as other universities. We're working, as I've mentioned several times, with universities all over the world. And they have the same challenges in these other countries. They are looking for digital solutions. So this new role within a group called the University Design Institute is giving me the opportunity to share what we've learned and to improve on what we've done. Very nice. I wish you all the best in your new role. Thank you. My favorite question, what is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? I would like to build that scalable, sustainable, adaptive instructional system. If there's anything that will change the trajectory of teaching and learning in the next 20 years, it's creating a new financial and educational model that will allow us to be more nimble. In the face of COVID-19, we see how quickly the educational system was disrupted. In a matter of weeks, the entire world had to cease the face-to-face educational model. So in the future, we need systems that are more nimble, that allow us to move between online and in-class experiences transparently and with as little resistance as possible. Uh, We cannot continue to absorb these kinds of crises in education without adversely impacting our future economic development. My own grandson is 13 years old and he lost the last half of his eighth grade experience this year. Mm -hmm. So I feel for the 1.5 billion students out there who had their educational uh, process, their learning process transformed in a short period of time. And we as educators have to think about ways to overcome the crisis, first of all, but also become more flexible as a result of this. And that would be a legacy that I would feel proud of. Beautiful. Thank you so much for this very insightful discussion. 
and for sharing, uh, for educating us on adaptive learning and sharing your case studies and experience. And of course, thank you so much for all the work you do to improve uh, higher ed. It's been my pleasure and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thank you so much, Dale. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.